We've now looked piece by piece at the nativity set. Many of you have nativity sets in your home, and you've been very familiar with the different characters that we've covered over these past few weeks. You're familiar with the shepherds, and you're familiar with the magi. You're even familiar with the little town of Bethlehem. These are relatively safe, non-controversial aspects of the nativity. Everyone can get along with shepherds and magi. We like those aspects of Christmas. But perhaps the most controversial character, or certainly the second most controversial character in all of our nativity sets, is the woman, Mary, the woman next to the manger where baby Jesus is lying. She is one of the most controversial figures in the world. Most of us, we don't really know what to do with Mary. Maybe we've come from a Roman Catholic background where we were told that we should pray to Mary and we should hail Mary and ask for her to pray on our behalf even though she is dead and in heaven. Some of us, we feel just very afraid of Mary. We, we don't really know what to do with her. So we don't talk about her. We, we, we don't want to improperly uh, overemphasize her. So we just briefly mention her and, and cast her off to the side. We, we treat her just mostly as a figurine that we put on the shelf in the nativity set. This is interesting because Mary and the way that we tend to treat Mary is an example really of the same problem that we have of what to think about women in general. Mary as a woman in the Christmas story, as the female representative in the nativity, the way that our world and Christians tend to think about Mary, the mistakes that we make about Mary, often mirror the mistakes that we make when thinking about women. Either we idolize women improperly, we make images out of women and objects out of women, and we improperly worship them in an idolatrous way, or we improperly prop up feminism and the idea of secular womanhood, and we make it this religion in of itself that we worship, or we, for fear of doing those things, we don't want to honor women at all. We talk about things like submissiveness and complementarianism, but perhaps sometimes we just use that as a way to allow ourselves to not let women have any part in the church or, or to not want to regard women in any way. There are two extremes, both of them wrong, in the way that we treat Mary that is also representative of how we think about and treat women. And the reason why I'm making that connection between Mary as an individual and women as a whole is because the Bible actually makes that connection between Mary as one singular woman and what she represents for women as a whole. We don't think of the Christmas story as being a story that teaches us about how God views women, but it is, and it's pervasive throughout Scripture. So this morning, we are going to talk about Mary, but we're not just going to talk about Mary. We're going to talk about the role that Mary played as a woman in how it fulfilled a story of redemption that God had been working out all the way from Genesis to Revelation. 
And in doing so, it will show us the incredible importance and value that God has for women and how we should treat them and respect them and honor them. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But really, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15 in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is not a typical Christmas passage that you would think to turn to when learning about the nativity, but this is Paul writing what's called a pastoral letter to one of his protégés named Timothy. Timothy was preparing to become the main pastor of the church in Ephesus. And 1 Timothy represents instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy about how to lead and organize that local church. And one of the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy concerned the role of women in the church because in Ephesus during this time, there was a question about the role of women teaching. There had been a tradition in secular religion and in the temples, there had been this tradition of women serving as Greek and Roman prophetesses. And their job would be go, would to go and to teach these foreign religions in the city of Ephesus. And we see from Galatians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3 that God says that in Christ Jesus there is no longer male nor female. So there had been this question that Timothy had been dealing with that Paul is addressing, which is, should women still embrace their identity as women? Should women continue in their role as women? Is this something that they should continue in even in this new age of the church and the gospel? And the reason for that is because, unfortunately, both in Jewish history and in secular history, women had been seen as lower than men. In fact, it was even assumed by Jewish tradition that the reason why women had to submit to men was because of the sin of Eve in the garden. One of the books of the Apocrypha, which is not scripture, it's not inspired, they are not holy words, but they do reveal to us the way Jewish people thought during the time of Christ. There's one verse in the Apocrypha that says, for a woman, from a woman, sin had its beginning. And because of her, the woman, we all die. And in fact, even another person, his name was Philo, he was not a believer, his words were not inspired, but even he, he wrote in the first century, he asked, why does the serpent in the garden speak to the woman and not to the man? He said, in order that they may be potentially uh, deceived by trick for, trickery and artfulness, that the woman is not accustomed uh, to be deceived in the same way as a man, for the judgment a woman is more feminine and her softness makes it more her more plausible to falsehood. Isn't that just evil? Isn't that just an awful way of thinking about women, that this idea of a woman's role as a woman and her submissiveness in the household and under the leadership of a local church, there was actually a belief that this submissiveness was actually a punishment because of Eve's sin. And Paul's going to address that here in this letter to Timothy, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, 
Him saying that, that was nothing controversial. That's just saying that the role that women have had in the local church is the role that needs to continue under the leadership of male elders. He says, they should not teach or exercise authority. She is to remain quiet for, look at what he says in 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's an amazing thing for Paul to write because it appears as if Paul is about to just repeat the same things that we read from Philo and the Apocrypha and the basic human tradition of why women are to be submissive. But Paul then in verse 15 says something incredible. He changes the narrative. Look at what he says in verse 15. This is one of the most overlooked verses in Scripture and one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. He says, yet she, this is referring to a singular woman, by the way, not women in general. The, the grammar here is a singular woman. Verse 15 says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And then he continues on referring to all women if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world could it mean for a woman to be saved through childbearing? We know that salvation is by grace alone, not of works. And of course we know that there's no way that God would only give salvation to those women who happen to have had children. So what could Paul mean when he refers to a singular woman saying, the woman, she will be saved as a result of childbearing. Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 3.15, you can also write in your outline that from 1 Timothy we see that pregnancy or womanhood as a whole, it represented a reminder of sin. That throughout the Bible, we see examples of the pain and childbearing being described as a punishment for sin. We see this in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17, where people suffering under the Lord's judgment are described as pregnant women who are suffering in childbirth. We see that as well in Jeremiah chapter 4, but most famously, we see the connection between the pain in childbirth, not childbirth itself, but the physical pain and suffering that comes with childbirth. The most famous example where we see that is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, where the product of Adam and Eve's sinfulness were all kinds of punishments and curses on the ground. In fact, even Romans chapter 8, verse 22, describes the curse of creation as a kind of curse that causes even creation to groan as if it was in the pains of childbirth. There's this association with the pain of childbirth being a reminder of the punishment of sin, which is why it's so amazing that Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, would use childbearing not as a model to remind us of sinfulness, but as something to be used to point us and remind us about God's salvation. Because so often we remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, which talks about the pain that Eve will receive in childbirth and all women after her. 
but we often forget the verse that comes right before that. This verse we call the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium, it comes from uh, Greek and Latin words, which means first and then gospel, the first giving of the gospel, the first giving of good news didn't occur in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, didn't occur even in the book of Isaiah. It occurred in Genesis moments after the sin which made salvation necessary had been committed. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent right now, talking about the punishments that the serpent will receive. And God tells the serpent, the tempter, Satan, God tells the serpent this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Adam's not a part of this right now. He says that the issue, the problem here is going to be between the serpent and the woman, and not just the serpent and the woman, but between your offspring and her offspring. You and your translation of the Bible might have the word seed, referring to offspring. You might have the word descendant. But no matter what word your translation uses, it's referring to the same thing, a child that is going to be born of Eve. And God says that there will be enmity, not just between the serpent and the woman, but between the offspring of the serpent, referring to Satan, and the offspring of the woman, who God doesn't reveal yet. And he says that he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman shall be saved through childbearing. Eve is told by God in the moment of her sin that although as a result of her sin she is going to experience pain in her role as a mother, that she's going to experience physical torment as a product of her and Adam's sin, that it's going to be the same painful experience that God is going to use to actually bring about salvation and forgiveness for the very sinfulness which her and Adam brought into the world. And it would come from this offspring. So the question that begins at the beginning of the story of the Bible is, who is this offspring? Who is the child? Who is the descendant that is going to crush the head of the serpent? Eve's first child is named Cain, who is not a giver of life, but we find out is a taker of life in Genesis chapter 4, verse 11. Look at the end of chapter 4 in Genesis, specifically in verse 26 at the end of chapter 4. Imagine the hope that Adam and Eve could have had in Cain or in Abel as this offspring God had told them that an offspring would be, a, would be one who crushes the head of the serpent. And it's not Cain. Cain crushes the head of his brother. And Abel dies. And then Eve has to have another child uh, named Seth, wondering if perhaps Seth is going to be this offspring. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 4 says that to Seth also a son was born in Seth's older age. It says that he called his name Enosh. And look at the end of this verse, at the end of chapter 4, it says that at this time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
This is the first time that we see prayer occur in the Bible. When we see an offspring come and go, when, when, when we see another offspring, Seth, be born in replacement of the offspring who died, and now this offspring, Seth, he has another son, Enosh. These offspring are coming, and, and people are calling now unto the name of the Lord. It's almost as if they're calling out, saying, God, where is your salvation? Where is the serpent crusher? Where is the offspring that is going to be born of the woman who is going to bring about salvation? God is going to continue to promise this offspring. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. When God gives his covenant, covenant is a word that means contract, a contract that forms relationship between God and people. When God gives his covenant to Abraham, he promises Abraham three things. He promises Abraham blessing. He promises land, uh, promises Abraham land. But he also promises Abraham, most importantly, an offspring. He promises him descendants. Look with me in verses 17 and 18 of Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring." as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, which is singular, in your singular offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God is continuing this promise of a descendant to be born of a woman. He continues his promise to Abraham. And in fact, when Isaac is born, God repeats this covenant. He gives this covenant again to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 4. And he gives it again even to Jacob at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. God again and again with his people, as he's laying out the story of the Bible, as he's slowly revealing his plan for salvation, bit by bit, piece by piece, what is at the center is God's promise that was first given to Eve, which is that from a woman, a child will be born. There will be an offspring. He will crush the head of the serpent. And because of him, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise of a descendant is mentioned in the Mosaic Covenant, but it is not emphasized in the Mosaic Covenant. We still see this offspring pointed to through the sacrificial laws, the example of a lamb who is sacrificed. But God explicitly gives a promise of offspring again in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in another covenant, in another contract of relationship, this time one that he gives to David. The story of the Bible is based on the foundations of the covenants. Those are the pillars by which God reveals his plan for salvation the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and now the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God again to David, he promises King David a descendant. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is him talking to David. He says, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, that same word again, that same word for seed, that same word for descendant, referring to a physical human baby born of a physical human woman. 
God says that I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it's the same offspring that God is referring to. He's now revealing more of the picture of his salvation. That this baby born of a woman is not just going to be one who crushes the head of the serpent. He's not just going to be one through whom all the nations be blessed. He will also be one who is king over all the world for all of eternity. Is how God is describing this baby, this offspring born of a woman. And then finally, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. As the prophets begin speaking to God's people and pointing to the new covenant, God's people had failed. The line of David is either in exile or will soon be going into exile. In Isaiah chapter 7, God uses the prophets to point to the new covenant, the time where God will write the law on people's hearts, where God will provide salvation to them and mercy to them again. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to an evil king of Judah, a king named Ahaz, who is wanting to make an alliance not with God, but with an Assyrian emperor named Tiglath-Pilesar III, a famous figure from history, an evil figure from history. Instead of depending on God, he's depending upon man. So God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz as he's awaiting to be invaded and sieged by enemies in the north in Syria. In verses 14 and 15, specifically verse 14, God through Isaiah, in a moment of pain for Judah, in a moment of dismay for King Ahaz, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You see, when God would give his word, he would always accompany his word with a sign. That way he would show the power and the truthfulness of his words. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he gave Moses both a message, let my people go, but he also gave Moses a sign, the staff that would turn into a serpent. That's the way that God would work. He would show the power and the validity of his message by giving some kind of physical, tangible sign to reveal the truthfulness of that message. And here God says that the sign that will be given of this new covenant is going to be the sign of a baby. It says that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, an offspring, and he and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's three Hebrew words, im, which means with, anu, which is second person plural, us, el, which is God. Emmanuel. The best way to spell it in English, if we want to follow the Hebrew spelling, would be with an I. Because Emmanuel in Hebrew with an E actually means mother with us. But in the Greek New Testament, an epsilon is used for Emmanuel. And so if we spell it with an E like we do at our church, it's because we're following the way that it's spelled in the Greek in the New Testament. So there's not a right or wrong, but there is reason 
behind why we spell things the way we do, because God in his offspring, he's now revealing that this descendant is not just going to be one who crushes the head of the serpent. He's not just going to be a baby born of a woman who is going to bless all the nations, and he's not only going to be a king forever over all of the world. This is the most powerful revealing of who this offspring is going to be more than anything else, that this baby born of a woman is going to be God himself with us. That he's not just going to be a king sent on behalf of God. He's not just going to be a warrior sent on behalf of God or someone to bless people on behalf of God. He's going to be God himself. That this birth of a son is going to be God with us. And that's exactly how it was understood by the angel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2018. You can turn to Matthew, where Joseph is dismayed at the perceived sin of his betrothed wife. Even though they weren't married yet, being engaged in this culture was as serious as being married. And so for Mary to become pregnant was a terrible act of supposed betrayal against Joseph. The role of women, again, at this time in history was very low, not because God had dictated as such, but because Jewish culture in their sinfulness had seen women as so lowly and so unequal to men. But Joseph is a good man. He's, he's ultimately going to divorce Mary quietly. And he does so in part because in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, says that as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. She will bear an offspring, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus is the same name as Joshua, Yeshua. It means that the Lord saves for he shall save his people from their sins, verse 21 says. And then Matthew, he gives an editor's note in verse 22 to connect the New Testament with the Old Testament, to show that God has one story, to show that from the beginning, even with the first sin in the garden, God had a plan to fix a broken world, and that plan involved an offspring. It involved a baby born of a woman, because in verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew understood that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy for an offspring that God gives in Isaiah chapter 7 and in many passages leading up to Isaiah chapter 7. Our second point is this, that God could have used Adam to bring about salvation for the world. Adam, of course, was the head of his household. You would think that Adam would be the one used by God to bring about his plan of redemption to restore creation back to the way it was before sin. But the second point is that pregnancy, according to Scripture, the birth that takes place from a woman, from a mother, doesn't just represent a reminder of sin. Even more than that, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, pregnancy in the Bible represented God's means of salvation. 
God's physical means of bringing about a Messiah. The true means of salvation is God's grace received by faith. Recognizing that you're a sinner, that there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before God by your own good works. And recognizing that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only offspring, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Putting your trust and dependence on Christ for your salvation, repenting from a life of sin, and depending by faith on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do this and you will be saved. If you have never done this, no matter how much you call yourself a Christian, you are not one because you have not chosen by faith to follow God's Messiah that was brought about by a woman, that was brought about by a birth from a woman. In fact, remember what is said in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that even though there's been so much talk of Eve being the transgressor, the Bible doesn't say that sin came through the world, uh, to the world through Eve. The Bible chooses to say that the sin came into the world through the man, through Adam. But then in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, God also says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, his offspring, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God uses what the world despises to bring about his plan because he doesn't despise them, he loves them. He cherishes them. He values them. What Paul was saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 was that women should continue in their traditional roles as women, but not see it as one of dishonor, but one of great honor because the role of the woman was the role that God used to bring about the gospel. Because even through the pain that came in childbearing, God brought about salvation through his Messiah, his chosen one, the offspring, the descended king of David, the crusher of the head of the serpent. And as we look at our third point, we must conclude and ask ourselves, why? Why would God choose to use pregnancy? Why would God choose to use the process of a baby being born of a woman? Why would he use that to make that the means by which he brought about his Messiah? He could have Jesus appear in any way. He could have Jesus come down from the clouds of heaven on a chariot if he wanted to. But God chose throughout history to use the genealogies and the descendants and the birth of babies in this line of descendants that would lead through Abraham and David and ultimately to Jesus. Why would God do that? Because your third point is this. Pregnancy represents the mercy of God. The thing about pregnancy is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how many doctors you go to, children come from the Lord. There's nothing else we can do. We can, we can try to uh, unite a sperm with an egg. We can try to uh, put things together in just the right way in order to bring about conception. But no one else can tell two sets of unliving proteins to come together and have a spark of life that has a soul and to grow into a person, into the image of God. No doctor, no hospital can do that. God can do that. And pregnancy, which only comes from God, 
is a picture of salvation which can only come from God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all barren one way or another. We all need God's grace in our life. We all need what only God can provide. We all need to recognize that we are without hope, without God's Messiah. There are so many examples in the Old Testament of women that played important roles in God's story who couldn't have children. Think of Sarah, think of Rebecca, think of Rachel, think of Samson's mother, think of Hannah, think of Elizabeth. That's not by accident. It's no coincidence or irony that God chose to use women to bring about his Messiah and then also chose to, do women, uh, to use women who specifically were unable to have children. Because God wanted to show that even though he was using women, he was bringing about childbirth to bring about his salvation, he wanted it to be clear that he was the only one who saves. Just as he is the only one that could put life in the womb of a mother, he is the only one that can save you from your sinfulness. To be without children in the Old Testament was a mark of shame. In fact, it was even considered to be a, a, a life of hopelessness because there was this sense that you couldn't have eternal life because it was, this, uh, it was seen as if children would continue on your identity and your name after you were to die. So to die childless was like dying without eternal life. In fact, even Hannah, when she couldn't have children in 1 Samuel, it says that she would weep bitterly because of the shame and the reproach that would come as a result of her not having children. Even Elizabeth, later on in the New Testament, is described as having reproach as a result of not being able to have children. But let me read for you briefly how Hannah responds when God shows her mercy and when God does give her a child. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts. Another way to translate that would be my heart magnifies the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. If those words of Hannah sound familiar to you, it's because Mary repeats those words in Luke chapter 1. Turn with me finally now to Luke chapter 1. This virgin... He was visited by an angel, told that she is going to have an offspring, that his name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be a savior. The angel even tells Mary, you are favored, not saying that she is full of grace or full of deity in a way unlike other people, but to say that God has granted her mercy by giving her a child, even though she was a virgin, she would not have been able to conceive. God miraculously gives her a baby, and that baby is Emmanuel, God with us. God shows great mercy to Mary. And look at how she responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She recognized that God giving her a baby was God's mercy in choosing her, a poor teenage woman, miraculously given a baby. She recognized that she played a role in the story of God's redemption. She recognized that she was another chapter of God bringing about the gospel that began with Eve in the garden. 
the woman shall be saved through childbearing. Mary saw her role in that from generation to generation. And so when we set up our nativity, when we go to the nativity showcases, when, when we see Mary presented in pictures and in plays and in pageants, do not see Mary as a savior. See the baby as the savior. See the offspring as the savior. Don't see Mary as the mother of God. See Mary as one who has received mercy from God, just as we need God's mercy. But also, when you see Mary, see a woman, a human woman, who was just like us, who had the same sin as us, who had the same struggles as us, who experienced the same pain in childbirth that all women have experienced, and recognize the mercy and the love of God in his sovereignty to use women as equals to men, but to use their role to bring about hope to the world. And may it impact the way that we not only see women, not only the way that we treat women and celebrate biblical womanhood, but most of all, to celebrate biblical womanhood as an avenue to celebrate the good news of the baby Jesus who grew to be a man, who died on the cross for your sin, who rose on the third day and is seated at the right hand of God and is coming back soon to sit on the throne of David. This same Jesus who is God, born of a woman, the Son of God, God eternal. Let's put our hope in him and pray with me.